I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We will be digging into Ch Titus chapter 2, looking at verses 9 and 10 this morning. For true believers, embracing the practical implications of the gospel really flow from a love for God. Our love of God, which the Lord gives us at the moment of salvation. And, and this is really why the Apostle Paul wrote that the love of God controls us. Think of it, the love of God controls us, both his love for us and in response, our love for him. Another author, non-inspired, put it, put it this way. Love makes obedience of a thing a joy. To do the will of one we like to please it is, is never hardship, though it tax our strength. Each privilege of service, love will seize. Love makes us loyal, glad to do or go, and eager to defend a name or cause. Love takes the drudgery from common work and asks no rich reward or great applause. Love gives us satisfaction in our task and love in learning lessons of the heart. Love sheds a light of glory on our toil and makes us humbly glad to have a part. Love makes us choose to do the will of God, to run his errands and proclaim his truth. It gives our hearts an eager, lilting song. Our feet are shod with tireless wings of youth. In Titus 2, uh, verses 9 to 10, we're going to see that Paul highlights five gospel adorning characteristics that flow from a love of God that uh, that God's people must emulate in their workplace. And again, I just want to emphasize these are gospel characteristics. These aren't things that we externally force upon our lives. These are things that that flow from within, that flow from inside of us, from our heart that we want to do. And with that in mind, let's continue to go back to Titus and read. And again, read verses 1 to 10. Um, the, this uh, Verses 1 to 10 flow together like a unit. Um, and so I want to read verses 1 to get one to, through 10 together. But we're looking at verses just 9 and 10 this morning. Let's read that together. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound of faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with, with purity and doctrine dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. May the Lord bless the reading of his word in our lives today. So this morning, we are going to be looking at five gospel adorning characteristics for the workplace. 
with the first of these kind of jumping out at us right at the beginning of verse 9, and that is to be subject to your employer. Be subject to your employer. You see it there in the beginning of verse 9. Uh, Paul says, urge bond slaves or slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything. And notice if you have a New American Standard Bible, the, the, the verb there, urge, is italicized because that's really flowing um, uh, from passages beforehand where, where Paul is really uh, commanding Titus to, to urge the young man there in uh, verse 6. So it's flowing from that. It's, it's the idea of urging, in this case, slaves to do what they are called to do in the same way that Titus was to urge the young men to be sensible. And here we need to just see that God clearly calls us to be subject to your employer. Now, Paul is, has been moving through a, a, a typical household in that particular time, period of history. The, the household groups um, were, were given specific instructions. So here Paul is, is moving through the, these different groups within the Cretan churches, noting the life-differentiating gospel implications for each group. So as we read, he began with older men and then moved to older women then highlighted gospel implications for younger women and then younger men and Titus himself. And in verses 9 to 10, Paul's tur- Paul turns his attention to the only group that's not categorized by age or by gender, and that is slaves. And this group might very well comprise people from some of the other groups because you could have slaves who are young, you could have slaves who are old, you could have women who are slaves, and you could have men who are slaves. But there's a specific instruction that Paul gave to these um, slaves as a as a way to manifest that that their lives were changed, that they 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 really served a new master, indeed, that they were spiritually free men, although they were physically slaves. And and so um, when Paul or Peter address gospel implications for different age groups, both apostles do this in their writings when they address what men should do and, and what women should do, sometimes differentiating by older and younger, they turn attention to slaves and, and address what slaves should do and, and how they should honor the Lord in their station in life as slaves. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the, um, the Christian slave at that time, their duty to subject themselves to their master. Now, most English, most modern English versions of the Bible, including the New American Standard Bible, accommodate to our modern society's distaste of anything related to slavery. You notice I, I kind of read it that way, but if you look at the New American Standard Bible, they use the word bond slave. It's kind of an invented term. It really should just read slaves. It really just needs to be slave. And, and the term that Paul used here, that the Holy Spirit directed Paul to use, is the Greek term for slave that you're probably familiar with called doulos. And, and most English translations use bond slave or, or bond servant in place of the straightforward and more accurate translation of slave. And they do this uh, because of our modern propensity to want to have nothing to do with, with slavery. And uh, Pastor MacArthur wrote a whole book on that, this particular issue called Slave. And if you haven't read it, I, I welcome, uh, I, I would I'd recommend that you uh, read that. 
Now, there are some translations, modern translations, uh, such as the New English Translation, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and the New Legacy Standard Bible, which are notable exceptions in that they are translating this very clearly as slave. And, and at, that's as it should be. Slaves were part of the reality of society during biblical times. Uh, they were part of the church during New Testament times. And, and when the gospel goes forward, it goes forward into all segments of society and it brings forth fruit to God. That means that some of the people who heard the gospel believed it and were subsequently saved were slaves. And, and isn't it such a wonderful testimony to the grace of God that he saved some of those whose society would just rather overlook? Right? We're in a society where there are slaves, they are typically looked down upon as the lower echelons of society. They are not the wise, they are not the mighty, they're not the noble. Right? They, they, they are the ones who are overlooked. And yet God's grace even reaches to those. And God sees many. And in fact, Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthians that were, there were not many who were mighty, not many noble, not many wise, not many wealthy. There were not many, most we're on the other side of society, so to speak. And that's just just as it, it should be. Um, just as the, as the Peter, uh, just as the Apostle Peter declared at the salvation of Cornelius, that it's recorded to us in Acts 10, 34 and 35. He says, uh, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. See, humans show partiality and that that sin is condemned in Scripture, but God does not show partiality. And Peter says, "But in every nation, the um, but in every nation, the man who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him. Uh, though all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." And and Hallelujah, that that's just as it is. Um, you know, even Romans two two eleven says that there is no partiality with God, so that He is literally the Savior of the world. Right? He is the Savior, not just of Jews, but He is the Savior of all. Right? And not just of free men, but of all. In fact, um, Galatians 3.28 tell us that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. So not only does God save us, but He brings us and unifies us as one within the body of Christ so that spiritually speaking, there is no slave, there is no free, there is no like male and female, there, there's no Jew and Gentile, there's no ranking within the church. We are all one in Christ, just um, as the Lord intends it. Now, Paul mentions one saved slave by name in his letter to Philemon. Onesimus was a runaway slave to Philemon, and um, he ran away from Philemon. And uh, Paul uh, sent him back to Philemon, uh, not not merely as a slave, but more than a slave as a brother in Christ. Now, the Greek term uh, doulos refers to someone who has been sold or has sold himself into uh, utter servitude and submission of the will of the other. That's that's a, that's important to note. That like, and that's why it's important to differentiate between slave and and another term like bond slave. Bond slave would almost be like a a um, uh, something like a servant, something like a servant you would pay, get that you would pay. But the term here is slave. This is someone who has either been sold into slavery or has sold himself into slavery. 
Um, and, and when you do that, when you're in slavery, you are in utter servitude and submission to the will of another. And while we won't take time at this point to, to look at, uh, comprehensively at what the Bible says about slavery, I, I think it's important that we note uh, that the, a few things. So first of all, the New Testament does not condone or condemn the institution of slavery. It just didn't tackle it. Right? Didn't, didn't, it didn't do what uh, Christians, uh, these so-called Christians, are trying to do today. The New Testament doesn't try to pursue social justice. And if God didn't do that then, we would be ill-advised to do that now. It's not that those things don't matter. It's that those things are merely external. Uh, the New Testament doesn't condemn masters for owning slaves. And you might be shocked at that, but it doesn't. It doesn't condemn masters for owning slaves. The New Testament does condemn unloving thoughts and action towards your neighbor. So the, the implication is, if you are a master, be a good God-honoring one. You have to love your neighbor as yourself, even though that person might be your slave. Right? There's no, there's no um, a caveat that, well, my neighbor is not my slave. No, you're, biblically speaking, if you, in New Testament times, if you were a master of, of a slave, that slave was your neighbor and you were to treat them well. Um, the New Testament doesn't, doesn't try to overturn society. It doesn't try to overturn the structure and economy of society. Um, and, and I think that that's the reason for that is it's too low of a goal. Ultimately, those things will change. God will overturn all those things. Such in the, in the economy of God, there, there's not going to be any such thing as, uh, as the slavery as, as we have known it, um, humanly speaking. Right? We are all slaves of righteousness and slaves of the kingdom. But that's a, a different uh, metaphorical use um, that we're, we willingly and gladly uh, accept to our Lord and to our God. But understand that the, the overturning of an economy to try to free slaves, that's too low of a goal. A society can be completely free of slavery, like ours are. I mean, we, we recognize that there are some who are, who um, in human trafficking are, are slaves even now in, in the United States, uh, but it's not done openly. So the, in a society like ours is, is free, uh, but it's still headed for an eternity of punishment and hell because of sin and rejection of the only provision for sin of Jesus Christ. So God's goal isn't, isn't simply to, to take slavery away, not, not physical slavery. He, his goal is to take slavery to sin away through the gospel. It's a much higher, much more lofty goal. It's not that the gospel doesn't have practical implications upon slaves and, matter, uh, slaves and masters, but that the implications flow from the inside out, that is, from the heart out. That is, a, a master who is saved is going to behave drastically differently. He's going to treat his slaves drastically differently than, than, a, than he would have before he knew Christ. And a slave who knows Christ is going to treat his master and work for his master in a completely different way with completely different attitudes and actions than he did before he came to know Christ. So the New Testament, um, when we read the New Testament, it simply acknowledges the fact that, that some believers within the church were slaves and some were masters. Right? Fewer were, were masters, but 
but the, some scriptures are addressed to master. So, so this text in Titus is simply addressed to slaves. And, and uh, we, we acknowledge that in the wisdom of God, he chose not to put any instructions to masters here. Perhaps there weren't masters that were part of the church at this point on the island of Crete. That's a speculation. We're not sure, but, but we are sure he didn't include those instructions. But he does include them elsewhere. For example, in Ephesians 6, 9, the instructions to masters are this. And masters do the same things to them, that is, to slaves, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And then in Colossians 4, 1, masters grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So masters are addressed, but by and by and far, uh, uh, by and large, the the majority of the text uh, focus on uh, slaves because of the predominance of slaves within culture and also within the church. Now, those who were slaves were were to focus their spiritual energy not on gaining freedom, but on honoring their Lord in whatever station of life that God called them. When when he saved them, Paul tells the slaves in first Corinthians and first uh, Corinthians seven that that if they were able to gain their freedom, then then do so. But otherwise, they are to focus on serving God as the Lord's freedom. They are to focus on their spiritual freedom and serve the Lord as a slave, as the Lord's freedman. For example, in first Corinthians seven, I'll just read verses 20 to 24. Paul says each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Were you bought with a price? Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. In other words, Paul is saying, are you, are, are you a slave? You could serve Christ as a slave. Right? Even, even though you're spiritually free, you can serve Christ in that difficult situation. Even if your master is unsaved, even if he is, is harsh and unreasonable, you can honor Christ as a slave to him. Now, let's, let's take a moment to understand um, the, the slaves to whom Paul was writing and, and the slaves that, that Titus would have needed to, to urge to, um, to submit to their, their masters. Well, first of all, slavery in the, new, in, in the Roman Empire was pervasive and common. Pervasive and common. Wasn't an odd thing. It is estimated that during the New Testament period, the Roman Empire needed 500,000 new slaves each year to maintain itself. Now let that sink in. It needed 500,000 new slaves each year to maintain its economies and everything that was going on. Uh, to put that in perspective, it is estimated that there were approximately 450,000 African slaves who were brought to the United States over the course of the slave trade, over the entire course of the slave trade. The Roman Empire did that in one year, year after year after year after year. So unlike the, the slavery that plagued the United States, slaves in the Roman Empire came from multiple ethnic groups. So you couldn't look at people and just say, well, they're, they're a slave. Who were the slaves? Where did they come from? Well, some were people captured from Rome's wars, their far-flung wars. At that time, at the height of Rome's power, they, they conquered even all the way to Britain. Um, 
So they just took slaves from those nations that they conquered. Um, other slaves uh, were, were, um, were Jews, right? That, again, from, from, Romans, uh, from Rome's uh, victories. For example, about 100,000 Jews were sold into slavery during the first Jewish revolt against Rome. Other people were born slaves. That is, their parents were slaves and they were born slaves. Others were made slaves by, by foreign nations and were brought into the Roman Empire by trade with, with Rome. These were people from far off lands. Um, they were from as far away as uh, Black Sea, even as far away as to modern day Somalia. Others entered slavery as they were as, uh, as small children was they were left exposed or unwanted. Uh, unwanted children were just left outdoors. And others would gather them up and then raise them, and they would be raised to be slaves. And then others were kidnapped. Uh, that was not something that was uncommon at the time. Um, you could be kidnapped and then sold into slavery, Some, you know, somewhat similar to how Joseph was, was kidnapped by his brothers and sold into slavery. So similar story. So people could end up in slavery from all, all different routes and all different angles. And, and the, the diversity of origins meant that you couldn't often tell whether someone was a Roman citizen, a freedman, or a slave just by looking at them. There, now there was certain kind of dress that only Roman citizens could wear, but they, they didn't often wear that. Uh, their common workday dress was not that. So there was a lot of, of mixing uh, in, in that society. Now, slaves in, in New Testament times were allowed marital unions. They they didn't have uh, the legality of marriages, but they were allowed marital unions, and the breakup of families was not generally tolerated in, in the Roman Empire. Slaves were allowed to keep tips and to accumulate funds, and this is how many of them were able to buy their freedom. And those slaves were viewed by the Romans as uh, kind of the lower parts of society. They did see them as human beings, and, and in fact, slaves could even purchase Roman citizenship. And, and become citizens of, of Rome. Slaves were everywhere throughout the Roman Empire. And thus, this helps us understand why the New Testament addresses slaves on multiple occasions. In Titus 2, verses 9 to 10, slaves are given these, these five gospel-adorning attitudes and actions that they are to weave into the everyday realities of their lives as slaves. And the first of these, of the gospel-adorning attitudes and actions, is that slaves were to be subject to their own masters. This was a call for slaves to subject themselves to their own master. And, and we've seen the word uh, be subject to before, so we don't have to spend a lot of time with that. For example, in Titus 2.5, young women are called to be subject to their husbands. We looked at it there. The word relates to putting oneself under the authority of another. It was a military term used to speak about soldiers putting themselves under the authority of their commander. And thus, when the gospel calls slaves to submit to their own masters, it, it is doing so in the same way that it calls wives to submit to their own husbands, just as we looked at uh, earlier a few weeks ago. And thus, this is a call for slaves to willingly obey the instructions of their master. And Paul uses a, like a present tense verb here to talk about the, the consistent pattern. This was to be the consistent pattern of their life. It wasn't just to be do this once in a while or occasionally. This was to be the pattern of their life as a Christian slave. And, and notice that the submission 
wasn't to be, a, be to, to masters in general, but it was to be to their own masters, to their own masters. Urge bond slaves, slaves to be subject to their own masters. It is theirs. And, and we, we have seen this before the, the, in, in the, the reflex of being um, pointing that they're there to submit to their own and, and not to somebody else's master. And it's interesting, the Greek word for master here is the, is the Greek word despotus, um, from which we get the English word despot. So now in English, that carries a very negative connotation. But essentially in Greek, a, a despotus is someone with absolute power over another. Someone with absolute power over another. So it just, it just talks about the, the fact that it's the other side of the coin. A slave is under the authority of another. Uh, uh, someone who is a, a despotus is, has absolute power over another. Now, in a, in a sense, uh, we could call God a despotus. That is, God has has absolute power and control over us. And he's perfect and good. So the word itself, the word despotus or despot, doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, it's bad. The, the problem is that we only know it from a human perspective. We only know what... Uh, we only have bad experiences with this, is what I'm trying to say. Because of the sinfulness of man, we... Uh, know that men, given absolute power over others, will abuse that power, right? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, and, and in some sense, the, the failings of our government today are, are because of that. that. You see people with power, and particularly during um, the, the, um, this uh, pandemic, uh, as governments seize power, they're, they're using that in really ways that are tyrannical. And that, that happens when people get that kind of power over another. But the, but the Greek term doesn't carry all that negative baggage that the English term does. It's just emphasizing the near absolute power that the master has over his slaves. So in other words, the, the, in most cases, the slave doesn't have a choice. It's not exactly equivalent to how we're applying it in our lives with uh, applying it to employers. So a slave is called to submission to his or her master um, and, and to her own uh, master. So this is similar to how a wife is called to submit to her own husband, how children are called to obey their own parents, and how Christians are called to submit to their own elders. Right. So w- with these instructions to submit, there is given the, the boundaries for that. So God wants you to live out a willing heart level submission to the specific authority that he has placed over you. And this should, this submission is to be in everything. Look with me at verse nine. Urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. Now, of course, there are those people that want to emphasize the in everything. And it's usually the tyrannical leaders who say, well, you're supposed to obey in everything. But but notice this is a command not to masters to force that but for slaves to willingly give that subjection in the same way that wives are called to willingly subject themselves to their own husbands. It's never the role of the husband to enforce that kind of submission. Um, the, the, the idea here is that God gives you a, a boundary and, it, and it's in everything, in everything within bounds. Submission was to be in everything that the master had authority over and for which a slave 
which for a slave would be fairly exhaustive. Yet there were things which they could not submit. So when you see in everything, you, you must use the, the larger context of Scripture to understand that. It, it's not exhaustively everything. For example, they should not do anything which God's Word prohibits. And they should not stop doing anything which God word, God's Word commands. So if, if they were ordered to sin, either by not doing something or doing something, that is an instruction that the slave can should not obey. Just like we, we looked at this somewhat when we were talking about submission, when a, when a wife is to be subject to her own husband in everything. There, there are boundaries within the Scripture with that. That is bounded. Um, a, a, another way that this is bounded is that the slave should obey in everything that, that is uh, lived out as love. That is everything that is in alignment with loving God and loving your neighbor. Okay? So these are these. It's another way to look at that in everything, in everything where that would allow you to love God, and everything that would allow you to love your neighbor as yourself. So this call for slaves to be subject in everything is similar again to the command for children to obey their parents in all things, Colossians three twenty. And the command to wives to be subject to their husbands in everything, Ephesians 6.24. And the command for believers to be subject to governing authorities in everything. And we looked at that in, in um, Romans 13. So the, there, the, when God establishes these levels of, of authority and submission, he's bounding them by, by your particular authority and also by the aspect of in everything. That is in everything that uh, is not sin and everything that is loving towards God and everything that is loving towards your neighbor. And there are going to be exceptions to that. And we talked about some, too, in, in weeks past about the, the, the realms of authority. And I'm not going to delve into that except to point you to to uh, past messages where we talked about that and kind of explained the, the realms of authority that God has placed in our lives and how those authorities overlap and those authorities don't have don't have um, rightful, legitimate authority to speak in a different realm. Um, so, for example, we talked about in the past how uh, government did not have authority to speak into your personal life to tell you how many kids you should have. Now, governments try to do that, and they do do that, but they have no authority from God to do that. In other words, you don't have to listen. It's not, it's not sin against God if you don't listen to the government in those areas. So as a slave may face some situations where they could not be subject to their own master. But but the emphasis here is is that of being submissive. A, a slave should should be known by their willingness to subject themselves, which that runs contrary to to how most slaves would have act would have acted during that time. And this this again is why this is a a kind of a, a an aspect of the slave's life and modern day employee's life that really shines the gospel because a slave in that time would not have willingly complied. A, an unsaved slave would have would have bemoaned and, and groaned and complained. And uh, the sinful master would have had to punish them in order to get them to do the things that that they um, were commanded to do. Right. That's that's not the way it's supposed to be with Christian slaves. Now, let's talk a little bit about how this applies to us, since obviously we don't have slaves today. And what do we do with passages like this that address 
slaves when we don't have slaves with us? Well, we what we do is we appropriate the principle to the closest environment that we have, and that's our workplace environment, our employer. So unless you're self-employed or retired, you have an employer and, and that's how you need to, to you need to think about your employer um, in the sense of, of the one that you are called to submit to. Uh, submission was not easy for slaves and submission is not easy for us today either. It requires setting your mind uh, to obey God and asking for his help to subject yourself to your employer's instructions. And God wants us to submit ourselves to the instructions of our employer, employers in everything. Uh, and, and like we spoke about earlier, this in, this in everything is in everything that is not sin, in everything that would allow you to love God, and in everything that would allow you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are to be sub- to subject to them in everything that does not violate our conscience, which is another boundary that God gives us. You should never violate your conscience, even in cases where your conscience might be ill-informed and not informed by Scripture, if you violate your conscience, that's sin against God. So never violate your conscience, even if your employer, even if the government is telling you something different. Don't violate your conscience. We are to be subject in everything that does not that does not put our, ourselves at risk. So so in these things, as we talk about employers and their employers who are trying to mandate, for example, the, the vaccine and things like that, there are legitimate reasons why you would refuse that. Right? So we as believers in Christ and children of God are not to be known by, by our rebellion. We're to be known by our compliance. We're to be known by our compliance. That should be the pattern of our lives such that when there are these odd moments where you, you can't obey, those are the odd ones. Those are the exceptions. And and. Far too often, that's not the way it is. You know, when we find ourselves in those rare occasions when we cannot obey, then we just need to pray for wisdom about, about what to do. In some cases, you just need to find another job. You know, that, that, a slave couldn't have done that, um, except to buy their own freedom. That would have been very hard. But in our society, you can simply, if you're having trouble submitting to your employer, then go find another job. Market's hot right now. There's lots of jobs available right now. Um, but the point is, you need to honor the Lord and submit to your employer. That's the general rule of thumb. Um, in other cases, you might need just to respectfully explain to your employer why you cannot comply with their instructions. And then just trust God's sovereignty with the ramifications of that disobedience. If it's a, general, if it's a job that you like, if it's a job that you're known for doing, doing really good at, and, and uh, you do well at the job, and you, you generally like your employer, then, then just explain why you can't obey this one instruction that they're giving and then just trust God with the uh, consequences of that, you know, and trust the Lord to, to steer that. And in some cases, your employer may completely overlook that and may, may grant you the exception when you do so respectfully in a way that, that uh, honors the Lord. So as we think about this, uh, the, how to apply it, think about being subject to your employer. Again, it's not a... A, um, it's not a, a pleasing topic. It's not a topic that we like because all of us are very independent and independent spirited. and We like to do what we want to do. But the Lord calls us to submit, right? To subject ourselves to our employer willingly and joyfully. So the, the next gospel adorning characteristic that Paul brings up here, found in verse 9, 
is is the word is found in the word well pleasing. We are to be well pleasing. So not only to subject yourselves to your employer, to submit to your employer, and be submissive to your employer, but to be well pleasing to your employer. Now let's talk about the word well pleasing. The word well pleasing carries the idea of giving satisfaction or giving pleasure uh, to someone. And scholars have noted that Titus two nine is the only place where the Greek word well-pleasing is used in a context that does not have, that does not directly um, tie back to pleasing God or pleasing Christ Jesus. Um, for example, in Romans 12.1, a passage you know well, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Then in Romans 14.18, he says, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And now, and let me explain a little bit of the context there. Paul is talking about the idea of not putting a, an obstacle in front of your brother, not putting a stumbling block in front of your brother, not judging your brother, not destroying your brother. That is, giving up some of the, the freedom that you have as a Christian in order to, to love your brother. And that is a way in which we serve Christ. When we we willingly give up a freedom that we have for the sake of our brother. That is how we honor our Lord. We serve our Lord. And, and that is acceptable to God. That's pleasing to God. In 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul uses the term again. He says, therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So Paul's just saying we have as our ambition as Christians, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing, to be acceptable to him. And then in Ephesians 510, uh, in, a, in a context that's that talks about us walking as as children of the light, he says that we are we are trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And the word trying is maybe not the best translation, it's really proving what is pleasing to the Lord by how you live it, by how you walk. As you walk as children of light, you prove or you show what is pleasing to the Lord as you live out his will. And then in Ephesians 4.18, Paul says, but I have received everything in full, talking about this gift from the um, that he received from the Philippian church. He says, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So the Philippians sent a church, the Philippian church sent a gift to Paul. And, and that gift not only was uh, a, a blessing to Paul, but it was well-pleasing, it was acceptable to God. So ultimately, they, they gave the gift to Paul, but it was really done in worship of God. And in Ephesians 3.20, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And one other place that term is used in Hebrews 13, um, verse 20. Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus, our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, so there, just talking about how God works in our lives uh, helping us to 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 uh, to understand his will, equipping us for every good thing to do his will and working in us that which is pleasing. Right? The Lord works in us that which is pleasing to him. 
So all these all these terms, these words are are the occasions where Paul used this term in reference ultimately to God. And so because of the predominant use of of this word in the New Testament is in context that focus on pleasing God, we can't um, or we, we should not lose sight of the fact that though we are talking about pleasing your employer, ultimately this is talking about pleasing God. We want to please God. So pleasing God is the larger transcending issue here. And we're not talking about what the world would consider about pleasing. This isn't the, you know, the kiss up to the employer so you get the good assignments type thing. This is the type of, of well-pleasing where you're serving your employer and, and you're seeking to be well-pleasing or seeking to be acceptable to them in order that you might honor your Lord and your God. In other words, you're working for your employer, but you see that you're really doing you're working for God. And we seek to be pleasing to God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, under, understand that, that on our own, human beings could never please God. Could never please God. Not on our own. The only way that you can please God is, is as a believer in Christ, living um, out of faith, out of faith in Jesus Christ, and, and, and out of that, then living for Him. Right? We can't please God on our own. We need to be saved. Like just the normal average employee, you can have good employees who aren't saved, but they're working for their own reasons, their own promotion, their own their own career. Um, they're working to get that uh, the next raise. Um, whereas believers are called to to work as unto Lord to please Him. So the Bible tells us that none of us on our own are, are pleasing to God. So again, just point us back to the gospel. The fact that that we can't we can't take Titus the instructions here to Titus about being pleasing to our employer and just just apply that willy nilly. We need the Lord's help. This this is something that the Holy Spirit needs to help us to do. So if you're not a believer in Christ, you're not going to be able to apply this passage to apply the instructions that are given here in Titus. You need to to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and and be saved. And be born again so that the Holy Spirit is within you to help you to honor our Lord and our God. There's no way that any of us could please the Lord on our own, is, is what I want to be very clear about. So this pleasing God is, is, the, is the pleasing obedience of the child of God. And to put it this way, um, when, you, when, you're, when your children are young and you start giving them some chores around the house, like uh, just the example, give a, sweep the kitchen. And, and you show them how to use the broom and the dustpan. Um, and, and they go and they do it. And they're, um, they might be kind of encouraged that they were able to do that. What kind of job did they do? Did you have to go back and like sweep up some of the stuff that they missed? Um, did, what about the dustpan? How'd they use that? And they probably left some of the dirt that they swept that got left on the floor. Well, that's kind of like, but, but it was pleasing to you because you saw them take steps of, being able to do things on their own. You took, they took steps of obedience. And that's kind of how the Lord looks at our obedience. Right? What we do isn't perfect. Um, only Christ is perfect. And yet he's patient with us. And, and so the desire, that, uh, how we need to look at this well-pleasing, it, it's not that we earned it. We could put a badge on our, on our, uh, our chest and say we've earned the, the badge of well-pleasing to the Lord. All of this is lived out by faith. And we live it to glorify Lord and our God and not not to 
like uh, puff ourselves up with pride is, is what I want to be very clear about. So we talk about well-pleasing. It's under the guise of the Lord has accepted you as a child of God and as his child, you are making steps towards obedience, albeit imperfect, but you're seeking to obey him and that pleases him. So how can you be well-pleasing to your employer? Well, overall, seek excellence in all that you do. Seek excellence in all that you do, even when other people aren't going aren't gonna to notice it, even when it might not help you get the next promotion or the, the next uh, big, big raise or um, help you, it might not uh, gild your resume, but just seek to do excellence in all that you do. Do every job as if you were doing it for God, because in a sense, you are. And if you'll seek to do your very best, you will find yourself to be well-pleasing to your employer. Don't, don't be sloppy. Don't be careless. Uh, don't use the phrase, well, that's good enough for government work. Um, you know, do every job with excellence so that you honor your Lord and your God. Now, there, these other characteristics that we're going to look at really flow from that. They, they, they define what it means to be well-pleasing. So the, the third gospel adorning characteristic that you must have in the workplace is that you're not to be argumentative with your employer. Now, the word argumentative probably doesn't need too much explanation, but, but it just basically means to speak back, to talk back. And, and the word appears actually in, in Titus 1.9 in reference to, to those who would, would talk back or not accept sound doctrine. Uh, Titus was called to refute those. Who, who kind of talked back um, uh, uh, regarding sound doctrine. So what is, what is God's word telling us here? Don't have a sassy mouth that, that talks smack when your employer gives you instructions that you don't like. God does not want his people to be contentious and disrespectful to their employer. You know, when, when God gave the Israelites instructions and they were wandering in the wilderness and they, just, they would always just complain, you know, that, that those passages are really good to read because they teach us a lot about ourselves and those passages are given to us for our instructions. But just realize that, that God doesn't want you to be like that. Right? So the, the and, and I understand that it's hard, particularly when your employer does things that are foolish or thing, does things that are unreasonable. But see the greater purpose. You are to honor the Lord. Don't be argumentative. As one commentator warned, he says, in our, in our day of self-centeredness and self-elevation, being argumentative is almost a way of life for some people, including, unfortunately, some Christians, unquote. That, that ought not to be. That should not be. So think about and take stock of how you respond to your manager. How do you respond to your director when you are given instructions? And when I say instructions, if they give you instructions you like, those are easy to obey. I'm talking about the instructions that they give you that you don't want to do, that you don't like. How do you respond then? Do you mouth back? Do you give a snide, snarky, and seething response? Um, probably don't do that verbally, but what, what about when they leave and they turn their back? How do you respond then? How do you respond like around your, your coworkers? Do you complain about the bad boss with your coworkers? God does not want you to be doing that. How you respond once the boss is out of sight tells a lot about 
where how you're doing spiritually with this command to submit to your employer, to not be argumentative with your employer. So do do your do your fellow employees know you as one who is respectful of your employer or as one who is mouthy and dishing dish you know dishing your boss once he once he or she leaves your presence. So don't be argumentative. Now understand this this um, command here doesn't mean you can't raise your concerns. It doesn't mean you you can't express your opinions or stand up for your convictions if there's things that you just should not do. What I'm saying is that what the Word of God is saying, more importantly, is do these things respectfully, not not in a way that's argumentative. So address those issues in the in the right way and in the right forum. The, the, so the third gospel adorning characteristic that you must have in the workplace is that you not be argumentative. And then the fourth is that you must not pilfer from your employer. You not pilfer from your employer. Now, the word pilfer means to steal or to deprive someone of something. And, and while, while doing their master's work, slaves were often put in a position where they had opportunity to pilfer. They, they had opportunity to take something that was their master's. And remember, I told you that slaves were allowed to keep tips. They were allowed to, to kind of build up wealth on their own. And that might one day help them buy their freedom. And so slaves had a great temptation at times to take things that were not theirs, not given to them, but they would, but they would use that in the management of their master's business. They would take a little bit, not enough to be noticed, not enough to be caught, but they would, they would take and they would steal. And I'm sure... Like, like today, in many people's minds, they justify it that their well, their master has a lot. Their master probably won't even know that it's gone, and and those things can be very true. And yet, God's word says, "Don't do it." It is stealing. So, as one commentator explains, because household stewards or business managers in New Testament times were frequently slaves, they had considerable opportunity to misappropriate money, food, jewelry, or other valuables entrusted to their care. In modern times, many workers have access to company funds and property that is not easily converted, that is easily converted to personal use. Many others pilfer by such means as submitting inflated timesheets and expense reports, taking office supplies for home, taking office supplies home for personal use, making unauthorized calls on the office phone, or taking unauthorized trips in the company car. When Christians do such things, their actions are not only unethical and damage their employer financially, but are also unspiritual and do damage to the Lord's name and to their testimony, unquote. So again, this is something that should not be. Right? There's the overall command, do not steal. This is just one of those aspects where, where Paul is reminding the slave that, that, that though they stolen the past as a slave they might have stolen the past as a slave and probably did that is not to characterize them anymore so christian uh, understand that, that though you are commanded uh, that you are commanded not to steal and defraud and and so paul wants to drive home a, a kind of a necessary and countercultural characteristic that would brilliantly adorn the gospel to those who who lived with and worked with the slaves so understand that this is this is what God's driving at. A slave who who emulated these things would stand out. They would be very different, even amongst the other slaves. And then obviously with their master. And that's by God's intention. These things are to 
are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And we'll get to that, uh, that greater purpose in just a moment. The final gospel-adorning characteristic that you must have in the workplace is you must be trustworthy. You must be trustworthy. Look at this at the beginning of verse 10. They're not pilfering, but showing all good faith. In other words, the, the term showing all good faith, in essence, means to, to be trustworthy. And notice there that, that there's a contrast between not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So there's a strong contrast there uh, with the you had two negative characteristics and now this positive, showing all good faith. And the faith here does not refer to the, the faith. There's no article there, but it re- really refers to faithfulness. In other words, you are to show all good faithfulness. In other words, you're to be loyal. You're to be trustworthy. Um, in other words, you are to, to always have your employer's best interest in mind. Always take care of them and do all you can to make their business prosper. Right? That, that's what the Lord calls us to. So as we look at all these together, we see these five attitudes and actions that must characterize us in the workplace. We're to be subject to our employer and everything. We're to be well-pleasing to our employer. We are not to be argumentative with our employer. We are not to pilfer from our employer. We are to be trustworthy. We are to be loyal to our employer. So why does God care about all this? This is just temporary stuff, right? This is stuff in the here and now and all of it burns. Why does God care about us? Why does God instruct us uh, to do these, these things? Well, in this passage, we're given clear guidance to the reason. God didn't have to give us the reason, but he, but he does. Look with me in verse 10 so that they will adore the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Who's the they? That's the slaves. That, that what he's, he's giving the slaves a very high and lofty goal here. He's saying, though you're, you're looked upon as the lower echelon of society, and you have a job that, that many people don't want, you could still honor the Lord there, and, by, and, and through the means by which you serve your employer, your master, you can adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You have a high lofty goal, and that is you you put on the gospel. And and we see that the word so that gives the purpose of this. And this is the third purpose statement given in this passage. Look at uh, uh, sorry Titus 2.5, where um, Paul tells um, the women the reason why they're to do all those things that he told them to do, to be sensible, pure workers at home, be kind, be subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And then in verse 8, in talking to Titus, and, and the young men indirectly, but Titus directly, say that he was to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Here, in verse 10, there's a, there's a positive uh, purpose given, and that is so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Now, the word adorn is the Greek word um, cosmeo, from which we get cosmetics. It's, it's the idea of putting on. And, and we're not talking about doing anything artificial. Remember, we're talking about the gospel is to flow from the inside out. But, but it does flow from the inside out, and it does have implications in our lives, so that the way that you live, that's a marked change from how a, a sinner would, would live. When I talk about a sinner, someone who is unsaved, 
there is a marked difference between the Christian slave and the non-Christian slave. There is a marked difference between the Christian employee and the unchristian, the unsaved employee. There is to be this, this drastic change. And notice that it's in every respect, in all areas of life. Uh, Charles Spurgeon explained the, the importance of this, and I'll just read part of uh, a paragraph from his commentary. He says, There were Christian slaves who had bad masters, who nevertheless were faithful to them in guarding their interest. It was such a marvel that the rich heathen who despised the name of Christ still coveted to buy Christian slaves, for they found them to be the most faithful of mankind and wondered what it was that made them so. This is why this is what Paul meant when he said that they should they should do credit to the teaching of God, their savior in their sad and low estate by not being degraded by it, but standing up in the grandeur of the Christian liberty, determining that they would not be the slaves of sin. This was a wonderful adornment for the gospel. Kind of an interesting way to put it. Here is a slave being called to live a higher standard to show that they are not a slave to what? Sin. They are the free men. That's another way to look at all this. So the things that are mentioned here in Titus, if you did them, would be sin. If you're argumentative with your employer, that's sin. If you steal from your employer, that's sin. So he's calling the slaves to show that they are truly free men, free from the power of sin. In short, that's that's another way to look at all that we've looked at with all these different all these different age groups looking at men and women it's simply learning how to live in a way that demonstrates that you're no longer a slave to sin because the world around us lives as slaves to sin they don't have any choice and they live a certain way because they're slaves of sin but god calls us to a higher standard that christian each day that that we go to work and we get ready. Think about your daily. You, you spend time. How much time do you, you spend? Do you spend 30 minutes getting ready for work? An hour? 45 minutes? Um, you know, some, some of you just maybe wake up and, and like me, I could just put a little water in my hair. Others, you got to take a shower. You got to wash. You got to dry, dry your hair. Um, for ladies, you got to paint the barn. Put the cosmetics on. Um, brush your teeth. You get dressed. Why am I, why, why, why am I, mentioning, why am I mentioning all this? Think about the time that you spend preparing for you to go to work. But do you spend any time preparing spiritually? Do, do you think ahead of time? You know, today I'm called to submit to my employer. I might get, a, I might get an instruction today that I don't like. How am I going to respond? Lord, help me to respond well. I might be tempted today to, 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 to put something in my pocket that's, that's not mine. It's not, a big, it's not a big thing, but it's my employer's. It's not mine. You know, Lord, I want to I want to honor you. I want to I want to pursue a, a job of excellence. And I might be tempted today to do shoddy work because I just want to get home. Right? I just want to move on to the next thing. So so understand that this is a, a call in a sense for us to prepare. So the next time you stand in front of the mirror and get ready in the morning, think about just pray. Lord, help prepare spiritually. Pray. Ask ask God to help you honor him throughout your day. As, as you work for your employer. So um, we need to see that this is such an important topic that it appears multiple times in the New Testament. I think because slaves were so common. I, I think that that's why they're addressed so frequently. But let me just read these to you as, uh, as we close here uh, this morning. 
Uh, Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 8. Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 8. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And then in Colossians 3, verses 22 to 24, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. And then in 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 to 2, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. And then our own passage, the passage we looked at today, Titus 2, 9-10, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adore the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses Verse 16, I'll read through verse 25 because that's how the text flows into pointing us to Christ. He says there, he says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only for those, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Beloved, if you are a Believer today, your shepherd and the guardian of your soul calls you to serve him in righteousness, not to to live sinfully, but to serve him in righteousness. And as we looked at a specific application of that is living righteously uh, with your and by living righteously by serving your employer in a way that honors our Lord and our God. Well, let's pray together. Lord, we we just want to. Just acknowledge the fact that we've all failed your standard. That we've all missed the mark. 
even as believers, Lord, there's times where we've been argumentative, we've been rebellious, we may have even taken things that really didn't belong to us. Lord, we have not worked for the betterment of our employer. We've not worked loyally or faithfully. And I just ask, Lord, that you would call us to account where that's applicable. Call us to account. Call us to repentance. And help us to repent of these evil ways, of these sinful ways of living, and help us to live righteously and holy so that the gospel of God is adorned, so that people can see that we are genuinely saved. Lord, just pray that you would just make your gospel shine through our lives, in our workplaces and in our families, that these characteristics that we've studied through in Titus 1 through 10 would would be part of the fabric of our lives, not, not perfectly, but in increasingly better ways, increasingly more pure ways, so that the gospel of Jesus Christ is uh, shines more brightly through each passing day. For your glory and honor, it's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.